Welcome, dear listeners. Please, take a seat. This is the last episode of The Sign of the Four. We'll be off for a few weeks to have a small break and prepare for the murder mystery, Elegant Deceit. The first episode will air December 4th. Episodes will air bi-weekly instead of weekly from there on. With that said, I have a story for you. Settle in. This is The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 12 A very patient man was that inspector in the cab, for it was a weary time before I rejoined him. His face clouded over when I showed him the empty box. There goes the reward. Uh, when there's no money, there's no pay. This night's work would have been worth a tenner each to Sam Brown and me if the treasure had been there. Mr. Thetty's Sholto is a rich man. He'll see that you are rewarded, treasure or not. It's a bad job. And so Mr. Athelney Jones will think. His forecast proved to be correct for the detective looked blank enough when I got to Baker Street and showed him the empty box. They had only just arrived, Holmes, the prisoner, and he, for they had changed their plans so far as to report themselves at a station upon the way. My companion lounged in his armchair with his usual listless expression, while Small sat stolidly opposite to him with his wooden leg cocked over a sound one. As I showed him the empty box, he leaned back in his chair and laughed aloud. This is your doing, Small. Yes, I've put it away where you'll never lay a hand on it. It's my treasure, and if I can't have it, I'll make sure no one can. I tell you that no living man has any right to it, unless it's three men in the Adam and Convict barracks and myself. I know now that I can't use it, and they never could. I've done this for them as much as for myself. For us... It's always been the sign of four. I know that they would have had me do exactly what I have done and throw the treasure into the Thames instead of let it go to kith or kin of Sholto or Morstan. It wasn't to make them rich what we did for Ahmed. You'll find the treasure where the key is and where little Tonga is. When I saw that your launch must catch us, I put the loot away in a safe place. There are no rupees for you this journey. You are deceiving us, Small. If you'd wished to throw the treasure into the Thames, it would have been easier for you to have thrown box and all. Easier for me to throw, yes, but also easier for you to recover. He who is clever enough to hunt me down is also clever enough to pick an iron box from the bottom of a river. Now that they're scattered over five miles or so, it may be a bit of a harder job. It broke my heart to do it, though. I was half mad when I saw you. However, there's no good grieving over it. I've had ups in my life, and I've had downs, but I've learned not to cry over spilled milk. This is a very serious matter, Small. If you'd helped justice instead of hindering it, you'd have had a better chance at your trial. Justice? What justice? Whose loot is this if not ours? Where is the justice in my giving it up to those that never earned it? Look how I have earned it. Twenty long years in that fever-ridden swamp, all day at work under the mangrove tree, all night chained up in the filthy convict huts, bitten by mosquitoes, racked with fever, bullied by every black policeman who'd love to take it out of a white man. That was how I earned the Agra treasure. And you talk to me of justice, because I cannot bear to feel that I have paid this price, only that another man may enjoy it. I would rather swing a dozen times or have one of Tonga's darts in my hide than live in a convict's cell and feel that another man is at his ease in a palace with the money that should be mine. You forget that we know nothing of all this. We've not heard your story, and we cannot tell how far justice may originally have been on your side. Well, sir, you've been very fair to me though I can see that I have you to thank for these. Still, I bear no grudge for that. It's all fair and above board. If you want to hear my story, I'll tell you. What I say to you is God's truth, every word of it. Thank you. You can put the glass beside me here, and I'll put my lips to it if I am dry. I was born near Pershore, 
You would find a heap of smalls living there now if you were to look. The truth is that I was never much of a credit to the family. They're all steady, chapel-going folk, small farmers, well-known and respected over the countryside, while I was always a bit of a rover. When I was about 18, I gave them no more trouble. I got into a mess over a girl and could only get out of it by taking the queen's shilling and joining the third buffs, which was just leaving for India. I wasn't to do much soldiering, however. I just got past the goose step and learned to handle my musket when I was fool enough to go swimming in the Ganges. Luckily for me, my company sergeant, John Holder, was in the water at the same time, and he was one of the finest swimmers in the service. A crocodile took me, just as I was halfway across, and nipped off my right leg as clean as a surgeon could have done it, just above the knee. With a shock and the loss of blood, I fainted, and would have drowned if Holder hadn't got hold of me and swam for the bank. I spent five months in hospital, and when I was able to limp out with this timber toe strapped to my stump, I found myself unfitted for any active occupation in the army. I was pretty down on my luck, as I was a cripple not yet in my twentieth year. However, my misfortune soon proved a blessing in disguise. A man named Abel White, who had come as an indigo planter, wanted an overseer for his workers. He happened to be a friend of our colonel's, who strongly recommended me. The work was mostly to be done on horseback, so my leg was no great obstacle as I had enough knee left to keep a grip on the saddle. The job was simple enough. Ride over the plantation, keep an eye on the workers, and report the idlers. The pay was fair. I had comfortable quarters, and I was content to spend the remainder of my life in indigo planting. Mr. Abel White was a kind man, and he would often drop into my shanty and smoke a pipe with me. I was never in lucky for long. Without any warning, the great mutiny broke upon us. One month, India lay as still and peaceful as Suri or Kent. The next, there were 200,000 black workers let loose, and the country was a perfect hell. Of course, you know more about it than I from the papers, as I never did read much. I only know what I saw. Our plantation was in Mutra, near the border of the northwest provinces. Night after night, the whole sky was alight with the burning bungalows, and day after day we had small companies of Europeans passing through our estate with their wives and children on their way to Agra to the nearest troops. Mr. Abel White was obstinate. He thought that the whole affair had been exaggerated, and it would blow over as suddenly as it had started. He sat on his veranda, drinking whiskey and smoking cheroots while the country was ablaze about him. We struck by him. Dawson and I, who with his wife used to do the bookwork and the managing. Well, one fine day the crash came. I had been away on a distant plantation and was riding slowly home in the evening, when my eye fell upon something all huddled together at the bottom of a steep nula. I rode down to see what it was, and my heart chilled when I saw it was Dawson's wife, cut into ribbons and half-eaten by jackals and native dogs. Further up the road, I found Dawson quite dead, with an empty revolver in his hand and four sepoys laying across each other in front of him. I stopped my horse, wondering which way I should turn, when I saw thick smoke curling up from Abel White's bungalow and flames bursting through the roof. I knew I could do my employer no good and would only throw my own life away if I approached. From where I stood, I could see hundreds of the black men, still in their red coats, dancing and howling round the burning house. Some of them noticed me, and a couple of bullets sang past my head. So I ran across the paddy fields and arrived late at night, safe at Agra. There proved to be no great safety there either. The whole country was up like a swarm of bees. Wherever the English could collect in small groups, they held just the ground that their guns commanded. Everywhere else they were helpless fugitives. It was a fight of the millions against the hundreds, and the cruelest part of it was that these men that we fought against were our own picked troops, who we had taught and trained handling our own weapons and blowing our own bugle calls. At Agra, there were the 3rd Bengal Fusiliers, some six, two troops of horse, and a battery of artillery. A volunteer corp of clerks and merchants had formed, and this I joined, wooden leg and all. 
We went out to meet the rebels at Shogunj early in July, and we beat them back for a time, but our powder gave out, and we had to fall back upon the city. The city of Agra was swarming with fanatics and fierce people of all sorts. Our handful of men were lost among the narrow, winding streets. Our leader moved across the river and took up his position in the old fort at Agra. The old fort is a very queer place. It's enormous. The enclosure must be acres and acres. There is a modern part, which held all our garrison, women, children, stores, and everything else, with plenty of room left over. But the modern part is nothing like the size of the old quarter, which is given over to the scorpions and the centipedes. It's all full of great deserted halls, winding passages, and long corridors twisting in and out so that it's easy enough for folk to get lost in it. It was seldom that anyone went into it, though now and again a party with torches might go exploring. The river protects the front of the old fort, but on the sides and behind there were many doors in the old quarter and modern which had to be guarded. We had hardly enough men to watch the angles of the building and to serve the guns. It was impossible for us to guard every one of the innumerable gates. What we did was to organize a central guardhouse in the middle of the fort and to leave each gate under the charge of one white man and two or three natives. I was selected to take charge during certain hours of the night of a small isolated door upon the southwest side of the building. Two sick troopers were placed under my command, and I was instructed if anything went wrong to fire my musket when I might rely upon help coming at once from the central guard. As the guard was a good 200 paces away, however, and as the space between was cut up into a labyrinth of passages and corridors, I had great doubts as to whether they could arrive in time to be of any use in case of attack. I was proud at having this small command given to me, since I was a raw recruit and a game-legged one at that. For two nights, I kept the watch with my Punjabis. They were tall, fierce-looking chaps, Mohammed Singh and Abdullah Khan, both old fighting men who had been against us at Chilianwala. Their English was good, but I could get little out of them. They preferred to stand together and speak all night in their sick lingo. I then used to stand outside the gateway, looking down on the broad, winding river and on the twinkling light of the city. The beating of drums, the rattle of tom-toms, and the yells and howls of the rebels, drunk with opium and with bang, were enough to remind us all night of our dangerous neighbors across the stream. Every two hours, the officer of the night used to come round to all the posts to make sure that all was well. The third night was stark and dirty, with a small driving rain. It was dreary work in such weather. I tried again and again to make the six talk, but without much success. At two in the morning, the rounds passed, and broke for a moment the weariness of the night. My companions still would not be led into conversation, so I took out my pipe and laid down my musket to strike the match. In an instant, the two six were upon me. One of them snatched my firelock up and leveled it at my head, while the other held a great knife to my throat and swore between his teeth that he would plunge it into me if I moved a step. My first thought was that these fellows were in league with the rebels, and this was the beginning of an assault. If our door were in the hands of the sepoys, the place must fall, and the women and children be treated as they were in Kanpur. You gentlemen might think that I'm just making a case for myself, but I give you my word that when I thought of that, though I felt the points of the knife at my throat, I opened my mouth with the intention of screaming, even if it was my last one, to alert the main guard. The man who held me seemed to know my thoughts, for he whispered, Don't make a noise. The fort is safe enough. There are no rebel dogs on this side of the river. There was the ring of truth in what he said, and I knew if I raised my voice, I was a dead man. I could read it in the fellow's brown eyes. Listen to me, Sahib, said the taller and fiercer of the pair, Abdullah Khan. You must either be with us now, or you must be silenced forever. The thing is too great a one for us to hesitate. Either you are heart and soul with us on your oath on the cross of the Christians, or your body this night shall be thrown into the ditch and we shall pass over to our brothers in the rebel army. There is no middle way. Which is it to be, death 
or life. We can only give you three minutes to decide, for time is passing, and all must be done before the rounds come again. How can I decide? I said. You've not told me what you want of me. But I tell you now that if it's anything against the safety of the fort, I will have no truck with it, so you can drive home your knife and welcome. It is nothing against the fort, said he. We only ask you to do that which your countrymen come to this land for. We ask you to be rich. If you will be one of us this night, we will swear to you upon the naked knife and by the threefold oath which no sick was ever known to break, that you shall have your fair share of the loot. A quarter of the treasure shall be yours. We can say no fair. What is the treasure? I asked. I'm as ready to be rich as one can be. Just show me how it can be done. You swear then, said he, by the bones of your father, by the honor of your mother, by the cross of your faith, to raise no hand and speak no word against us, either now or afterwards. I will swear it, I answered, provided that the fort is not endangered. Then my comrade and I will swear that you shall have a quarter of the treasure, which shall be equally divided among the four of us. But there are three, said I. No, Dost Akbar must have his share. We can tell the tale to you while we await them. Stand at the gate, Mohammed Singh, and give notice of their coming. The thing stands thus, Sahib, and I tell you because I know that an oath is binding upon a Ferengi, and that we may trust you. The sick know the Englishmen, and the Englishmen know the sick. There is a Raja in the northern provinces who has much wealth, though his lands are small. Much has come to him from his father, and more still he has set by himself, for he is of a low nature and hoards his gold rather than spend it. When the troubles broke out, he would be friends both with the lion and the tiger, with the sepoy and with the company's raj. Soon it seemed to him that the white man's day was come, for through all the land he could hear of nothing but their death and their overthrow. Yet, being a careful man, he made such plans that, come what might, half at least of his treasure should be left to him. That which in gold and silver he kept by him in the vaults of his palace. The most precious stones and the choicest pearls that he had, he put in an iron box and sent it by a trusty servant who, under the guise of a merchant, should take it to the fort at Agra, there to lie until the land is at peace. Thus, if the rebels won, he would have his money, but if the company conquered, his jewels would be saved to him. Having divided his hoard, he threw himself into the cause of the sepoys since they were strong upon his borders. By doing this, his property becomes the due of those who have been true to their salt. This pretended merchant, who travels as Achmet, is in the city of Agra and desires to gain entry into the fort. With him as traveling companion is my foster brother Dost Akbar, who knows his secret. Dost Akbar has promised tonight to lead him to a side postern of the fort, and has chosen this one for his purpose. Here he will come soon, and here he will find Muhammad Singh and I awaiting him. The place is lonely, and none shall know of his coming. The world shall know of the merchant Ahmed no more, but the great treasure of Raja shall be divided among us. What say you to it, Sahib? In England, the life of a man seems a great and a sacred thing. But it's very different when there's fire and blood all around you and you've been used to death looming at every turn. Whether Achmed the merchant lived or died was an unimportant thing to me, but at the talk of the treasure, my heart turned to it. I thought of what I might do in the old country with it and how my folk would stare when they saw their ne'er-do-well coming back with his pockets full of gold moideries. I already made up my mind. Abdullah Khan, however, thinking I hesitated, pressed the matter. Consider, Sahib, said he, that if this man is taken by the commandant, he will be hung or shot and his jewels taken by the government, so that no man will be a rupee the better for them. Now, since we do the taking of him, why should we not do the rest as well? 
The jewels will be as well with us as with the company's coffers. There will be enough to make every one of us rich men and great chiefs. No one can know about the matter, for here we are cut off from all men. What could be better for the purpose? Say again then, Sahib, whether you are with us or if we must look upon you as an enemy. I am with you, said I. It is well, he answered, handing me back my firelock. You see that we trust you, for your word, like ours, is not to be broken. We have now only to wait for my brother and the merchant. Does your brother know, then, of what you will do? I asked. The plan is his. We will go to the gate and share the watch with Mohammed Singh. The rain was still falling steadily. The wet season had just begun. Brown, heavy clouds were drifting across the sky, and it was hard to see. A deep moat lay in front of our door, but the water was nearly dry up in places and could be easily crossed. It was strange to be standing there waiting for the man who was coming to his death. Suddenly, my eye caught the glint of a shaded lantern at the other side of the moat. It vanished among the mount heaps and then appeared again, coming slowly in our direction. Here they are, I exclaimed. You will challenge him, Sahib, as usual, whispered Abdullah. Give him no cause for fear. Send us in with him, and we shall do the rest while you stay here on guard. Have the lantern ready to uncover that we may be sure it is indeed the man. The light had flickered onwards, now stopping and now advancing, until I could see two dark figures on the other side of the moat. They scrambled down the bank, splashed through the mire, and climbed halfway up to the gate, where I challenged them. Who goes there? said I. Friends, came the answer. I uncovered my lantern and threw a flood of light on them. The first was an enormous sick with a black beard which nearly reached his cummerbund. I'd never seen a man so tall. The other was a little, round fellow with a great yellow turban and a bundle in his hand. He seemed to quiver with fear, his hands twitched as if he had a fever, and his head kept turning to left and right. It gave me chills to think of killing him, but I thought of the treasurer, and my heart hardened. He gave a little chirrup of joy when he saw me and came running towards me. Your protection, Sahib, he panted. Your protection for the unhappy merchant Ahmed. I have traveled across Rajputana that I might seek the shelter of the fort at Agra. I have been robbed, beaten, and abused because I have been the friend of the company. It is a blessed night this when I am once more in safety, I and my poor possessions. What's in the bundle? I asked. An iron box, he answered, which contains one or two little family matters which are of no value to others, but which I should be sorry to lose. Yet I am not a beggar, and I shall reward you, young Sahib, and your governor also, if he will give me the shelter I ask. I could not trust myself to speak longer with the man. The more I looked at his frightened face, the harder it seemed that we should stay him in cold blood. It was best to get it over. Take him to the main guard, said I. The two six closed in upon him on each side, and the giant walked behind while they marched in through the dark gateway. Never was a man so compassed round with death. I remained at the gateway with the lantern. I could hear the measured tramp of their footsteps sounding through the lonely corridors. Suddenly it ceased. I heard voices, a scuffle with sound of blows. A moment later, there came a horror, a rush of footsteps coming in my direction. With the loud breathing of a running man, I turned my lantern down the long straight passage, and there was the fat man running with a smear of blood across his face, and close at his heels, the great black bearded sick with a knife flashing in his hand. I have never seen a man run so fast as that little merchant. The sick was gaining on him, and I could see that if he passed me and got to the open air, he would save himself yet. My heart softened to him, but again the thought of his treasure turned me hard and bitter. I cast my firelock between his legs as he raced past, and he rolled twice over like a shot rapid. Before he could get to his feet, the sick were on him and buried his knife twice in his side. The man never uttered moan nor moved muscle, but lay where he had fallen. I think he may have broken his neck with the fall. 
You see, gentlemen, I am keeping my promise. I am telling you every work of the business just exactly as it happened, whether it is in my favor or not. It was all very bad, no doubt. I should like to know how many fellows in my shoes would have refused a share of this loot when they knew that they would have their throats cut for their pains. Besides, it was my life or his when once he was in the fort. If he had gone out, the whole business would come to light and I'd have been court-martialed and shot, for people were not very lenient at a time like that. Go on with your story. Well, we carried him in, Abdullah Akbar and I, heavy for being so short. Mohammed Singh was left to guard the door. We took him to a place where the six had already prepared. It was some distance off, where a winding passage leads to a great empty hall. The brick walls were all crumbling. The earth floor had sunk in at one place, making a natural grave, so we left Ahmed the merchant there, having first covered him over with loose bricks. This done, we all went back to the treasure. It lay where he had dropped it when he was attacked, the box which now lies open on your table. A key was hung by a silken cord to that carved handle upon the top. We opened it, and the light of the lantern gleamed upon a collection of gems such as I've only read of. It was blinding to look upon them. When we had feasted our eyes, we took them all out and made a list of them. There were 143 diamonds of the first water, including the Great Mogul, and is said to be the second largest stone in existence. Then there were 97 very fine emeralds and 170 rubies, some of which, however, were small. There were 40 carbuncles, 210 sapphires, 61 agates, and a great quantity of barrels, onyxes, cat eyes, turquoises, and other stones, the very names of which I did not know at the time, though I have become more familiar with them since. Besides this, there were nearly 300 very fine pearls, 12 of which were set in a gold coronet. By the way, these last had been taken out of the chest and were not there when I recovered it. After we counted our treasures, we put them back into the chest and carried them to the gateway to show Mohammed Singh. Then, we solemnly renewed our oath to stand by each other and be true to our secret. We agreed to conceal our loot in a safe place until the country was at peace again, and then to divide it equally. There was no use dividing it at present, for if gems of such value were found upon us, it would cause suspicion, and there was no privacy in the fort, nor any place where we could keep them. We carried the box into the same hall where we had buried the body, and there, under certain bricks in the best-preserved wall, we made a hollow and put our treasure there. We made careful note of the place, and next day I drew four plans, one for each of us, and put the sign of the four of us at the bottom, for we had sworn that we should each always act for all, so that none might take advantage. That is an oath that I can put my hand to my heart and swear that I have never broken. I suppose there's no use my telling you gentlemen what came of the Indian mutiny. After Wilson took Delhi and Sir Colin relieved Lucknow, the back of the business was broken. Fresh troops came pouring in, and Nana Sahib made himself scarce over the frontier. A flying column under Colonel Greth came round to Agra and cleared the rebels away from it. Peace seemed to be settling upon the country, and we four were beginning to hope that the time was at hand when we might safely go off with our shares of the plunder. In a moment, our hopes were being shattered by our being arrested as the murders of Ahmed. It came about this way. When the Raja put his jewels into the hands of Ahmed, he did it because he knew that he was a trusty man. They are suspicious folk in the East, however. So what does this Raja do but take a second even more trusty servant and send him to spy upon the first? This second man was ordered never to let Ahmed out of his sight, and he followed him like his shadow. He went after him that night and saw him pass through the doorway. Of course, he thought he had taken refuge in the fort and applied for a mission there himself next day, but could find no trace of Ahmed. This seemed to him so strange that he spoke about it to a sergeant of guides, who brought it to the ears of the commandant. A thorough search was quickly made. Thus... At the very moment that we thought that all was safe, we were all four seized and brought to trial on a charge of murder. Three of us because we had held the gate that night, 
and the fourth because he was known to have been in the company of the murdered man. Not a word about the jewels came out at the trial, for the Raja had been deposed and driven out of India, so no one had any particular interest in them. The murder, however, was clearly made out, and it was certain that we must all have been concerned in it. The three six got penal servitude for life, and I was condemned to death, though my sentence was afterwards commuted into the same as the others. It was a rather odd position we found ourselves in then. There we were, all four tied by the leg, with precious little chance of ever getting out again, while we each held a secret which might have put each of us in a palace if we only made use of it. It was enough to make a man eat his heart out, to have to stand the kick and the cuff of every petty jack in office, to have rice to eat and water to drink, when that gorgeous fortune was ready for him outside, just waiting to be picked up. It might have driven me mad, but I was always a pretty stubborn one, so I just held on and bide my time. At last, it seemed to have come. I was changed from Agra to Madras, and from there to Blair Island in the Adamans. There are very few white convicts at this settlement, and, as I have behaved well from the first, I soon found myself a sort of privileged person. I was given a hut in Hopetown, which is a small place on the slopes of Mount Harriet, and I was left pretty much to myself. It was a dreary, fever-stricken place, and all around our little clearings were cannibal natives who were ready enough to blow a poison dart at us if they saw a chance. There was digging, ditching, yam planting, and a dozen other things to be done, so we were busy enough all day, though in the evening we had a little time to ourselves. Among other things, I learned to dispense drugs for the surgeon, and picked up a bit of his knowledge. All the time I was on the lookout for a chance to escape, but it's hundreds of miles from any other land, and there's little or no wind in those seas, so it was a terribly difficult job to get away. The surgeon, Dr. Summerton, was a fast, sporting young man, and the other young officers would meet in his rooms for an evening and play cards. The surgery, where I would make up the drugs, was next to a sitting room with a small window between us. Often, if I felt lonesome, I would turn out the lamp in the surgery, and I could hear their talk and watch their play. I am fond of a hand at cards, and it was almost as good to watch the others. There was Major Sholto, Captain Morstan, and Lieutenant Bromley Brown who were in command of the native troops, and there was the surgeon himself, and two or three prison officials, crafty old hands who played a nice slice safe game, a very snug little party they made. There was one thing which struck me, and that was that the soldiers would always lose and the civilians won. I don't say that there was anything unfair, but so it was. These prison chaps had done little else than play cards ever since they'd been at the Adamants, and they knew each other's games to a point while the others just played to pass the time and threw their cards down anyhow. Night after night, the soldiers got up poorer men, and the poorer they got, the more keen they were to play. Major Sholto was the hardest hit. He used to pay in notes and gold at first, but soon it came to notes of hand and for big sums. He sometimes would win for a few deals, just enough to give him heart, and then the luck would set in against him worse than ever. All day, he would wander about as black as thunder, and he took to drinking more than was good for him. One night, he lost even more than usual. I was sitting in my hut when he and Captain Morstan came stumbling along on their way to their quarters. They were bosom friends, those two, and never far apart. The Major was raving about his losses. It's all up, Morstan, he was saying, as they passed my hut. I'll have to send in my papers. I am a ruined man. Nonsense, old chap, said the other, slapping him upon the shoulder. I've had a nasty face for myself, but that was all I could hear. But it was enough to set me thinking. A couple of days later, Major Sholto was strolling on the beach, so I took the chance to speak with him. I wish to have your advice, Major, said I. Well, Small, what is it? he asked, taking his cheroot from his lips. I wanted to ask you, sir, said I. Who is the proper person to whom hidden treasure should be handed over? I know where half a million worth lies, and as I cannot use it myself, I thought perhaps the best thing that I could do would be to hand it over to the proper authorities, and then perhaps they would get my sentence shortened for me. Half a million small, he looked hard at me to see if I was earnest. Quite that, sir, in jewels and pearls. It lies there ready for anyone. 
And the queer thing about it is that the real owner is outlawed and cannot hold property, so it belongs to the first comer. To government, Small, he said in a halting fashion, and I knew in my heart that I got him. You think then, sir, that I should give the information to the governor general, said I quietly. Well, well, you must not do anything rash, or that you might repent. Let me hear all about it, Small. Give me the facts. I told him the whole story with small changes so he could not identify the places. When I had finished, he stood stock still and full of thought. I could see by the twitch of his lip that there was a struggle going on within him. This is a very important matter, Small, he said at last. You must not say a word to anyone about it, and I shall see you again soon. Two nights later, he and his friend Captain Morrison came to my hut in the dead of the night with a lantern. I want you just to let Captain Morrison hear that story from your own lips, Small, said he. I repeated it as I had told it before. It rings true, eh? said he. It's good enough to act upon? Captain Morrison nodded. Look here, Small, said the Major. We've been talking it over, my friend here and I and we have come to the conclusion that this secret of yours is hardly a government matter after all, but is a private concern of your own, which, of course, you have the power of disposing of as you think best. Now the question is, what price would you ask for it? We might be inclined to take it up, and at least look into it, if we could agree as to terms. He tried to speak in a cool, careless way, but his eyes were shining with excitement and greed. Why, as to that, gentlemen... I answered, trying also to be cool but feeling as excited as he did. There is only one bargain which a man in my position can make. I shall want you to help me to my freedom and to help my three companions to theirs. We shall then take you into partnership and give you a fifth share to divide between you. Hum, said he, a fifth share? That is not very tempting. It would come to fifty thousand apiece, said I. But how can we gain your freedom? You know very well that you ask for an impossibility. Nothing of the sort, I answered. I have thought it all out to the last detail. The only bar to our escape is that we can get no boat fit for the voyage and no provisions to last us so long a time. There are plenty of little yachts and yawls at Kolkata or Madras which would serve our turn well. Bring one over. We'll get aboard by night and if you drop us on any part of the Indian coast, you will have done your part of the bargain. If there were only one, he said. None or all, I answered. We have sworn it. The four of us must always act together. You see, Morstan, said he. Small is a man of his word. He does not flinch from his friend. I think we may very well trust him. It's dirty business, the other answered. Yet, as you say, the money would save our commissions handsomely. Very well, said the Major. We must, I suppose, try and meet you. We must first, of course, test the truth of your story. Tell me where the box is hid, and I shall get leave of absence and go back to India in the monthly relief boat to inquire into the affair. Not so fast, said I, growing colder as he got hot. I must have the consent of my three comrades. I tell you that it is four or none with us. Nonsense, he broke in. What have three black fellows to do with our agreement? Black or blue, said I. They are in with me, and we all go together. Well, the matter ended by a second meeting, at which Muhammad Singh, Abdullah Khan, and Dost Akbar were all present. We talked the matter over again, and at last we came to an agreement. We were to provide both the officers with charts of the part of the Agra fort and mark the place in the wall where the treasure was hid. Major Sholto was to go to India to test our story. If he found the box, he was to leave it there to send out a small yacht provisioned for a voyage, which was to lie off Rutland Island, and to which we were to make our way and finally return to his duties. Captain Morstan was then to apply for leave of absence to meet us at Agra, and there we were to have a final division of the treasure, he taking the major's share as well as his own. All this we sealed by the most solemn oaths that the mind could think or the lips utter. I sat up all night with paper and ink, and by the morning I had the two charts all ready, signed with a sign of four, that is of Abdullah, Akbar, Mohammed, and myself. Well, gentlemen, 
I weary you with my long story, and I know that my friend Mr. Jones is impatient to get me safely stowed in Choki. I'll make it as short as I can. The villain Sholto went off to India, but never came back again. Captain Morstan showed me his name among a list of passengers in one of the mailboats very shortly afterwards. His uncle had died, leaving him a fortune, and he had left the army, yet he could stoop to treat five men as he had treated us. Morstan went over to Agra shortly afterwards, and found as we expected that the treasure was indeed gone. The scoundrel had stolen it all without carrying out one of the conditions on which we had sold him the secret. From that day, I lived only for vengeance. I thought of it by day and I nursed it by night. It became an overpowering, absorbing passion of mine. I cared nothing for the law, nothing for the gallows. To escape, to track down Cholto, to have my hand upon his throat, that was my one thought. Even the Agra treasure had come to a smaller thing in my mind than the slaying of Sholto. I have set my mind on many things in this life, and never one which I did not carry out. But it was weary years before my time came. I have told you that I picked up something of medicine. One day, when Dr. Summerton was down with a fever, a little Adaman Islander was picked up by a convict gang in the woods. He was sick to death and had gone to a lonely place to die. I took him in hand, though he was as venomous as a young snake, and after a couple of months I got him all right and able to walk. He took a kind of fancy to me then, and would hardly go back to his woods, but was always hanging about my hut. I learned a little of his lingo from him, and this made him all the fonder of me. Tonga, for that was his name, was a fine boatman, and owned a big roomy canoe of his own. When I found that he was devoted to me, and would do anything to serve me, I saw my chance to escape. I talked it over with him. He was to bring his boat round on a certain night to an old wharf, which was never guarded, and there he was to pick me up. I gave him directions to have several gourds of water and a lot of yams, coconuts, and sweet potatoes. So staunch and true was little Tonga. No man ever had a more faithful mate. At the night named, he had his boat at the wharf. As it chanced, however, there was one of the convict guards down there, a vile Pathan, who never missed a chance of insulting and injuring me. I had always vowed vengeance, and now I had my chance. It was as if fate had placed him in my way that I might pay my debt before I left the island. He stood on the bank with his back to me and his carbine on his shoulder. I looked about for a stone to beat out his brains with, but I could see none. Then a thought came to me and showed me where I could find a weapon. I sat down in the darkness and unstrapped my wooden leg. With three long hops I was on him. He put his carbine on his shoulder, but I struck him full and knocked the whole front of his skull in. You can see the split in the wood now where I hit him. We both went down together, for I could not keep my balance, but when I got up I found him still lying quiet enough. I made for the boat, and in an hour we were well out at sea. Tonga had brought all his earthly possessions with him his arms, his gods. Among other things, he had a long bamboo spear and some adamant coconut matting, with which I made a sort of sail. For ten days we were beating about, trusting to luck, and on the eleventh we were picked up by a trader, which was going from Singapore to Jeddah with a cargo of Malay pilgrims. They were a rum crowd, and Tonga and I soon managed to settle down among them. They had one very good quality, they let you alone and ask no questions. If I were to tell you all the adventures my little chum and I went through, you would not thank me, for I would have you here until the sun was shining. Here and there we drifted about the world, something always turning up to keep us from London. All the time, however, I never lost sight of my purpose. I would dream of Chulto at night. A hundred times I have killed him in my sleep. At last, however, some three or four years ago, we found ourselves in England. I had no great difficulty in finding where Sholto lived, and I set to work to discover whether he had realized the treasure, or if he still had it. I made friends with someone who could help me. I named no names, for I don't want to get anyone else in a hole, and I soon found that he still had the jewels. Then I tried to get at him in many ways, but he was pretty sly, and had always two prize fighters besides his sons and his kitmagar on guard over him. One day, however, 
I got word that he was dying. I hurried to the garden, mad that he should slip out of my grasp like that, and looking through the window, I saw him lying in his bed with his sons on each side of him. I'd have come through and taken my chance with the three of them. Only, as I looked at him, his jaw dropped, and I knew that he was gone. I got into his room that same night, though, and I searched his papers to see if there were any record of where he had hidden our jewels. There was not a line, so I came away, bitter and savage as a man could be. Before I left, I bethought me that if I ever met my sick friends again, it would be a satisfaction to know that I left some mark of our hatred. So, I scrawled down the sign of four of us, as I had been on the chart, and I pinned it on his bosom. It was too much that he should be taken to the grave without some token from the men whom he had robbed and befooled. We would earn a living at this time by my exhibiting poor Tonga at fairs and other such places as the Black Cannibal. He would eat raw meat and dance his war dance, so he always had a hatful of pennies after a day's work. I still heard all the news from Pondicherry Lodge, and for some years there were no news to hear, except that they were hunting for the treasure. At last, however, came what we had waited for so long. The treasurer had been found. It was up at the top of the house in Mr. Bartholomew Schulto's chemical laboratory. I came at once and had a look at the place, but I could not see how with my wooden leg I was to make my way up to it. I learned, however, about a trap door in the roof and also about Mr. Schulto's supper hour. It seemed to me that I could manage the thing easily through Tonga. I brought him out with me with a long rope wound round his waist. He could climb like a cat, and he soon made his way through the roof. But, as ill luck would have it, Bartholomew Schulto was still in the room, to his cost. Tonga thought he had done something very clever in killing him, for when I came up by the rope I found him strutting about as proud as a peacock. Very much surprised was he when I made at him with a rope's end and cursed him for a little bloodthirsty imp. I took the treasure box and let it down, and then slid down myself, having first left the sign of the four upon the table, to show that the jewels had come back at last to those who had most right to them. Tonga then pulled up the rope, closed the window, and made off the way he had come. I don't know that I have anything else to tell you. I had heard a waterman speak of the speed of Smith's launch, the Aurora, so I thought she would be a handy craft for our escape. I engaged with old Smith, and was to give him a big sum if he got us safe to our ship. He knew, no doubt, that there was some screw loose, but he was not in on our secrets. All this is the truth, and if I tell it to you, gentlemen, it is not to amuse you, for you have not done me a very good turn, but it is because I believe the best defense I can make is just to hold back nothing, but let all the world know how badly I have myself been served by Major Schulto, and how innocent I am, of the death of his son. A very remarkable account. A fitting end to an extremely interesting case. There's nothing at all new to me at the end of your narrative, except that you brought your own rope. That I did not know. By the way, I'd hoped Tonga had lost all his darts, yet he managed to shoot one at us in the boat. He lost them all, sir, except the one which was in his blowpipe at the time. Ah, of course. I'd not thought of that. Is there anything else you'd like to ask about? No, thank you. Well, Holmes, you are a man to be humored. And we all know you are a connoisseur of crime, but duty is duty. And I've gone rather far in doing what you and your friend asked of me. I'll feel more at ease when we have our storyteller here safe under lock and key. The cab still waits, and there are two inspectors downstairs. I am much obliged to you both for your assistance. Would you inform Thaddeus of the conclusion? Mr. Jones, his name is Thaddeus. Thaddeus Sholto. Fine, fine, Thaddeus. One mustn't be so particular, Watson. It might be impolite. Oh, and of course, you will be wanted at the trial. Good night to you. Good night, gentlemen both. You first, Small. I'll take particular care that you don't club me with your wooden leg. 
whatever you may have done to the gentlemen at the Andaman Isles. There is the end of our little drama. I'm afraid it may be the last investigation that I'll have the chance to study your methods. Miss Morstan has accepted my marriage proposal. Oh, I feared as much. I really cannot congratulate you. Have you any reason to be dissatisfied with my choice? Not at all. I think she is one of the most charming young ladies I have ever met, and might have been most useful in such work as we have been doing. She had a decided genius that way. Witness the way in which she preserved that agri-plan from all the other papers of her father. But love is an emotional thing, and whatever is emotional is opposed to the true cold reason which I place above all things. I should never marry myself, lest I bias my judgment. <laughs> I trust that my judgment may survive the ordeal. But you look weary. Yes, the reaction is already upon me. I'll be limp as a rag for a week. Strange how terms of what in another man I should call laziness alternate with your fits of splendid energy and vigor. Yes, there are in me the makings of a very fine loafer, and also of a pretty spry sort of fellow. I often think of those lines of old Goethe. It's a pity that nature only created one person out of you, for the material was for a worthy man and for a rogue. By the way, apropos of this Norwood business, you see that they had, as I surmised, a confederate in the house. Who could be none other than Lal Rao, the butler? So, Jones actually has the undivided honor of having caught one fish in his great hall. The division seems rather unfair. You have done all the work in this business, and yet I got a wife out of it, and Jones got all the credit. Pray, what remains for you? Ah, don't worry what remains for me. For me, there still remains the cocaine bottle. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like, the Tea Room is open for you on Patreon. You'll get each episode early and ad-free. Today's episode featured the talents of Joshua as Sherlock, Paul as Watson, Will as the Inspector, Austin as Athlony Jones, Wendell as Jonathan Small, and me, Willow, as your narrator. Links will be in the show notes. Until December, take care, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>